word, let's turn to Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10. These are the words of Moses unto the people as they prepare to enter the promised land. We'll be reading Deuteronomy 10, starting at verse 14. This is God's holy and infallible word. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is this day. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. He is your praise, and he is your God, who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, seventy persons in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Let us pray. We thank you, O Father, for your great and awesome love. We thank you that you are the one who reveals unto us uh, salvation, especially through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would help us to see his deliverance for us through uh, this holy word. And we pray that you would help us to see how we are to express our gratefulness, our thankfulness unto you for what you have done for us, how you have loved us with a mighty, merciful, everlasting love. And Lord, we pray that you would work in and through us as we hear your word preached. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Is God great? Is God loving? Of course, the answer should be absolutely, absolutely for those of you who have faith and trust in his holy word and who believe in this word of God that we just read, an absolute resounding yes. In light of God's greatness and his loving kindness, how then does that affect your living? And I think today's text talks about that, doesn't it? Um, even the New Testament Uh, gives us a little glimpse of how we are to respond to the love of God. Um, I have it written there in your uh, sermon outline, 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. God has shown shown us his love through Jesus Christ our Lord, He has given us and shown us that love by giving up his only son. And then when we receive that love, 
How then do we express our gratitude? According to John, we love the brethren. Um, that's uh, where do you find the brethren? You find them in the church. And then so we how do we love God? We love his holy bride, his church. Today's today's text gives us a more full way in how to respond and show that love to those in the church. This book of Deuteronomy is a series, uh, you could say it's a series of farewell messages, but also messages of preparation that Moses preached when he was approximately 120 years old. And they were preparing to enter the promised land. Moses was not going to be allowed to enter. But this generation, uh, this next generation, all all of their parents had died in the wilderness except for Caleb and uh, except for those who had believed God's report, Joshua and Caleb. Um, Remember in Numbers 13, it's mentioned there that they were getting ready earlier, approximately a generation earlier, to go in, uh, 40 years earlier, to go into the promised land. God promised them that he was going to deliver unto them this holy land. It was going to be their inheritance, which land that God promised to their forefathers, to Abraham, uh, to Jacob, and to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But here we have um, only two out of 12 representing the 12 tribes believed the report. So what happened was because they trusted the unbelieving spies and because they refused to go into the promised land, God disciplined them and let them wander in the wilderness for a period of 40 years until that generation died off except for Joshua and Caleb. And now uh, it's time again for them to enter this promised land. Um, It's been 40 years and now they're getting ready. But before they do so, God has given them an exhortation on how they are to believe and how they are to obey God and it's giving in this second giving of the law. And that's what Deuteronomy means. It means second law. It's not a second law. It's a second application of God's holy law. And here uh, we have some uh, new application um, that they were given here about love toward those who were strangers, or it's called here aliens. The main focus for today's text is that we are to, uh, you are to respond uh, to God's love. You are to respond to God's love, and we'll look at this in uh, three different uh, headings. God's electing love, God's merciful love, and then your responsive love. Let's look first at God's electing love from verses uh, 14 and 15. Uh, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven, the heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is this day. He brings to mind the heavens of heavens. Next time you go out at night, especially it's best to go out in a place that doesn't have a lot of light, like out in the country, and you look at the stars and the multitude of stars in the sky you ask yourself of the greatness of God. I was uh, doing some reading in this um, website called universetoday.com. And only in the observable universe, what we can observe, even with the best technology, 
they estimate that the stars are at least one septillion. That's a one followed by 24 zeros. That's the number of the stars that we have just in the observable universe. Now, secular man says, well, if this creation is that great and that immense, why would God care so much about this puny little earth in the midst of such an immense creation? Well, uh, Psalm 8, in uh, in opposition to that unbelief or that skepticism, Psalm 8 there in in your outline, verses 3 and 4, says that, uh, David says here, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? David basically said, I see this immense creation. I see that you are a great and almighty and powerful creator. And in the midst of all that you created, what is man that you set your love upon him? The immense, the almighty creator of the heavens and the earth sets his love on man. And as we look at Deuteronomy 10, especially at verse 14, it it says the same thing as Psalm 8 yet in a more revealing answer. So in in verse 14, it tells of God's covenant love throughout the generations. It says, To the Lord belong the heavens and the highest heavens, that greater than septillion stars, the earth and all that is in it, every blade of grass, every person, every living creature. Yet although God has this great and immense creation, which is beyond comprehension, the Lord delighted and their fathers to love them. He loved their fathers, their forefathers before them. As they were suffering bondage in Egypt and they groaned unto the Lord, God heard their voice and he delivered them. He heard their cries and delivered them by a mighty hand, by many powerful works. And this was in keeping to the promise he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He granted this exodus deliverance through many signs and wonders and his promised seed was that chosen seed by his electing love. Now you might say, well, this passage is all about God's electing love of the fathers, those who were delivered from slavery in Egypt. Well, what about us? It says in the end of Galatians 3, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. When it was told to Abraham, I'm going to give you an inheritance as the stars of heaven and as the sand of the sea. We're a fulfillment of that by faith. By faith we are Abraham's seed. So this, the promises that were given unto Israel here in today's text belong unto us by faith. Yes, he owns the septillion and more of the stars. He's created all of this immense creation. Yet despite the immensity of God and the greatness of God, if you have faith in Christ, he has set his love upon you. That's something to rejoice in. Um, Today's text also says that God's electing love expands generations. 
Look at the second half of um, verse 15. It says, He chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples as it is this day. Um, the fact that the second generation um, be- continued to believe God and trust God for his promises is evidence that God is a God unto us and to our children. And that's what Peter preaches at Pentecost in, in Acts chapter 2. He says in Acts 2 that the promise is unto you and your children for all who are far off, as many as the Lord uh, our God will call to himself. He's a God that is a God unto us and to our children. That's why in our church we baptize our infants. But we also teach them that the promise is unto them and they have to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And we teach them and raise them in the holy faith that they are children of the promise. And that God gives us then, he raises up a spiritual heritage from the generations It is our duty, though, as parents, to pray for and with our children and to teach our children diligently all the things which he commanded us. Mm -hmm. Today's text is not only about God's electing love, but it talks about his merciful love toward the weak and the needy. Let's look at God's merciful love, starting at verse 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. So notice again, God's mercy or merciful love is given in context of his greatness. He is the Lord of lords and the God of gods, the great and the mighty and the awesome God. Uh, This is an interesting part of uh, Hebrew grammar. Um, We have in English something called the superlative when we say it's the greatest, something is the absolute greatest. Well, in Hebrew, it's not like that. It basically is a, repeti- a repetition of terms here. God of gods means the ultimate supreme God, or Lord of lords means the ultimate or supreme Lord. Um, this is not, though, giving any validity that there are lesser gods, as if there are some gods that are lesser than God. God's the ultimate God, but there are lesser gods below him. Um, for that, I want us to turn to Isaiah 44. Keep your place in Deuteronomy. But we'll turn to Isaiah 44. Let's start at verse 8. <coughs> Isaiah 44, verse 8. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long ago since announced it to you and declared it, and you are my witnesses? There is there any God beside me, or is there any other rock? I know of none. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so that they will be put to shame who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to to no profit behold all his companions will be put to shame for the craftsmen themselves are mere men let them assemble themselves let them stand up let them tremble let them together be put to shame the man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does 
his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it in the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir. The rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it into a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Other than the other half, he eats a meal as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. So the Holy Spirit gives unto Isaiah this very interesting little analogy, this example here of a man who takes a tree and he cuts it and with half of it he lights a fire and he, he cooks with it, he eats and is satisfied, and the other half he carves a, an idol out of it and says, you are my God. Isn't this the the very tree that you burned with fire and you ate your meal off of, and, but the other half is, a, is your God? It's foolishness, isn't it? And again, the summary is found again in the second half of verse 8. Is there any God beside me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. So when we look at Deuteronomy uh, 10, when we read that he's the God of God and Lord of Lords, it means that he is the ultimate, supreme, the only true God. And all other gods are but idols and worthless and useless. They cannot talk, they cannot speak, they cannot move, and they cannot deliver. As we look uh, more at today's uh, text, uh, it says that God is the only... I, I believe in when we uh, look at today's text and we analyze and we understand who God is, the only true God is the one that the Holy Bible reveals as himself being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All other claims to deity are but a lie from the pit of hell. Verse 17 talks about God being further exalted. In the second half of verse 17, it says, The great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. This is giving evidence of God being righteous and holy and upright. He is righteous and there's no wickedness in him because he's holy and pure. Now the signature of the author of the Quran is found in one of these passages in the Quran which cites that Allah is the world's greatest deceiver. Who does that sound like? That sounds like the father of lies, the one who was a liar from the beginning. Contrary to that, God is the righteous God. He's the mighty God, but he is the one who is upright and holy. He, is, he shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. 
And it, it goes on further to say, in verse 18, he executes justice for the orphan and the widow. He shows, he shows his merciful love in that he executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Matthew Henry says that God gives to all life and breath and all things, even to those who are the Gentiles and strangers to the commonwealth of Israel and to Israel God, Israel's God. So you could say that even to the unbeliever, even to the unbeliever, he gives food and clothing and raiment. Even to those who he has not shown his word and his grace and his sacraments and the grace of his church, he is kind and merciful to those who are outside of the kingdom because he is a loving and merciful God. And on that day of judgment, they will have no argument and say, I, I never saw an example of your mercy or love. But God is one who is merciful and loving. But as we praise our God for his creation, and we praise him for his mercy, I want us to turn to, uh, to Psalm uh, 146. It's a, a parallel passage that talks about God's loving mercy. Psalm 146, very reminiscent of this section of Deuteronomy. Start reading in verse 5. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects the strangers, or that could be translated aliens. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. When you read passages like this or you read of uh, God's merciful love, especially God's merciful love shown through Jesus Christ, it should make you want to imitate his merciful, loving character. And that leads us to our responsive love. Look at uh, your responsive love in verse 19. So, in light of all that God has revealed to you, so show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. That word here, alien, can also be translated as foreigner or stranger. And in our modern context, we might think of immigrants. We might think of those who have uh, left their homeland. Maybe that they are refugees of the war, or maybe they're refugees of some other sort. And God is reminding them um, of these foreigners and aliens, that God loved them while they were yet foreigners and aliens. Now, in regard to the church, we can look at that and we can interpret that as not just someone who's from another country, but we can interpret this as being someone outside the covenant community. When someone comes through the door and they're not a member of the church or maybe they're a visitor, we are, they are kind of outside. 
They're outside of, of the body. So we should embrace them with the love that is mentioned here in today's text. Uh, Moses reminded the people of Israel that they were strangers in the land of Egypt. They were strangers, foreigners, because that was not the land of their original ancestry. Jacob and his 12 sons migrated to Egypt, and even many, many years later, they were still considered as foreigners. They were not considered Egyptians. They were considered the people of Israel because they were different. They had different practices, a different faith. But God blessed them. It mentions there in Deuteronomy 10 how God even multiplied them. In verse 22, your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. And God remembered them in their plight as they groaned unto the Lord and that he delivered them from their bondage under Egypt. Now, some of you might rightfully ask or you might say, what does this have to do with me? I was never a slave in Egypt. Isn't this some story about the people way back when. But the truth of the gospel is that God has delivered you from a far greater slavery than the slavery in Egypt. He has delivered you from the power of the evil one, the tyranny of the devil, the accuser who accuses um, men and women and children before God day and night. But if you have faith in Christ, he can accuse you no longer. Because Christ has paid for your sins. Because Christ has also perfectly obeyed the law for your sake. What accusation can he throw against you if you have faith in Christ? None. Scripture also teaches you that he has freed you from the power and the tyranny of sin. Sin shall no longer have dominion over you. You will have sin every day, yes. As believers, you will continue to sin, thought, word, and deed, but more and more, God is sanctifying you if you belong to Christ. If you're, indwelt, if you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, you can and shall be victorious over sin. Romans 6 there, mentioned in your outline, says that we are to consider uh, yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, verses 11 to 12. God would not put that into the mind of Paul by the Holy Spirit to tell us to do that, to command us to do that, if it were not possible or impossible for us. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, rather than sin reigning over you, God can help you more and more to reign over sin rather than have it reign over you. But you only can reign over sin through Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. This deliverance of the people from Egypt and slavery into Egypt is a type, a shadow, a, forf a forerunner, you could say, of the coming greater deliverance through Jesus Christ, the ultimate, perfect, blessed Lamb. They were delivered from slavery. They were delivered while they were yet aliens in a foreign land. And I love this uh, beautiful hymn, which uh, we'll be singing after the, at the end of the message. Come thou fount of every blessing. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. 
God sought us when we were yet strangers and aliens from the, the kingdom and brought us in and adopted us into his family by his electing merciful love. Therefore, he says, because of my merciful love, therefore you ought to love the stranger or the alien, the outsider in your midst. Imagine um, sometimes when people come from outside the Christian faith, they might feel rather peculiar. And when they've not been raised in church, they might feel like an outsider. They might not feel like they belong they might feel kind of off. And, you know, God used this in a great degree to my, for me as a Roman Catholic coming into the Christian faith. I was, it was very, very new to be in a, in a Reformed and Presbyterian church or really to be in any church outside the Catholic church. But the people of the church took me in. They took me into their homes and they took me into their hearts. And, and that was a big instrument that God used to bring me into the Christian Household of faith. And God would teach us to love the stranger in our midst as well. This is a call for Christian hospitality. This is a call for Christian hospitality. Because God gives us a home, a spiritual home, and he feeds us by his word and sacrament, and he has washed us with his blood, he clothes us with his righteousness he adopts us into his family and gives us a place and a home. We, in turn, should love the strangers among us. Now, Christian hospitality is not a call for entertaining. Some people think hospitality is entertaining. Well, really, it's giving the essentials. If someone, maybe especially if someone's visiting from out of town, um, or maybe someone we've never met before come to the church, we should open our homes to them and open our hearts, even if you have to offer them a sandwich or, or some soup or whatever. It doesn't have to be anything extraordinary. But that's how we welcome people into the church, by opening our hearts to them and exercising this means of Christian hospitality. And it's, it's something that is a requirement for church officers, but it's something that every Christian ought to strive to to open their hearts and their homes to those outside or those who are new or unfamiliar to us. God's electing and merciful love teaches us that God is a great God. He is the ultimate and the supreme God. He has set his love upon us and he sets his love also upon our children after us as we raise them in the Christian faith and we teach them the ways of God. But we have to pray diligently for our children and teach them the ways of the Lord. But his mercy and his holiness and his righteousness is demonstrated through Holy Scripture. And he wants us to imitate him in those things. By opening up our hearts and our homes to those who are outside of the Christian faith. Now, I believe when people come and they're visitors, maybe, to the church. A person comes as a visitor, maybe they're just an acquaintance. But when you get to know them, and really there's only, there's only so much you can get to know a person by a few minutes of talking after church. But when you get to know them by having them over to your home, they become not just a visitor, they become a friend. And then friends eventually become church members. And that's one of the ways in which God grows his church and gives us intimate friends and family. 
Another argument for this as well is that if you have brothers and sisters whom you love and you grew up with, wouldn't you want to spend time with them, not just out somewhere, but you want to spend time together in each other's homes? Because that's what family do- a family does. And we are the family of God. So a couple of practical applications of this is maybe from time to time, prepare and have your home maybe ready with maybe some food and prepared. And maybe a, a visitor comes to church for the first time. Open up your home to them. And if someone else, uh, if, they, if they can't come, maybe you could open up your home to someone else who's already in the church that you've never got to know very well. You could use that as a way of building your relationship of your um, greater knowledge and intimacy with your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. But this is something that God calls us to do as an exercise or a demonstration of the love that he has for us through Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. We thank you, our blessed Lord, that you have set your love upon us and that while we were yet strangers and even more so while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And you forgave us of our sins and you have adopted us into your family. And we pray, O Father, Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember what it's like to be outside of that household of faith, outside of your grace, And Lord, help us to have compassion upon those who are outside of your kingdom and those who are new to the Christian faith. We pray that you would help us to exercise the grace of Christian hospitality, to love the strangers in our midst. Lord, give us your grace and peace. Lord, give us the motivation to carry this out in a way that is pleasing unto you. We pray that you would help us to build your church by the faithful preaching of your word, by the teaching of your word, by the fellowship of the saints, and even by this exercise of loving the strangers in our midst. Help us in these things, for we ask it all in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. For a hymn of dedication, we'll stand and sing 429, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Let's stand and sing 429.